Section 28 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 28 Claremond, Part 3. When I came to myself again, I was lying on the bed in my little room at the presbytery, and the old dog of the former curé was licking my hand which had been hanging down outside of the covers. Afterward I learned that I had lain thus for three days, giving no evidence of life beyond the faintest respiration. Barbara told me that the same coppery-complexioned man who came to seek me on the night of my departure from the presbytery had brought me back the next morning in a close litter and departed immediately afterward but none knew of any castle in the neighborhood answering to the description of that in which I had again found Claremond. One morning I found the Abbé Serapion in my room. When he inquired after my health in hypocritically honeyed accents, he constantly kept his two great yellow lion eyes fixed upon me and plunged his look into my soul like a sounding lead. Suddenly, he said, in a clear, vibrant voice, which rang in my ears like the trumpets of the Last Judgment, The great courtesan Claremont died a few days ago, at the close of an orgy which lasted eight days and eight nights. It was something infernally splendid. The abominations of the banquets of Belshazzar and Cleopatra were reenacted there. Good God, what age are we living in? The guests were served by swarthy slaves who spoke an unknown tongue, and who seemed to me to be veritable demons. The livery of the very least among them would have served for the gala dress of an emperor. There have always been very strange stories told of this Claremond, and all her lovers came to a violent or miserable end. They used to say that she was a ghoul, a female vampire. But I believe she was none other than Beelzebub himself. He ceased to speak and commenced to regard me more attentively than ever as though to observe the effect of his words on me. I could not refrain from starting when I heard him utter the name of Claremont, and this news of her death, in addition to the pain it caused me by reason of its coincidence with the nocturnal scenes I had witnessed, filled me with an agony and terror which my face betrayed, despite my utmost endeavors to appear composed. Serapion fixed an anxious and severe look upon me, and then observed, My son, I must warn you that you are standing with foot raised upon the brink of an abyss. Take heed, lest you fall therein. Satan's claws are long, and tombs are not always true to their trust. The tombstone of Claremont should be sealed down with a triple seal, for if report be true, 
It is not the first time she has died. May God watch over you, Romold. And with these words, the abbe walked slowly to the door. I did not see him again at that time, for he left for S almost immediately. I became completely restored to health and resumed my accustomed duties. The memory of Claremond and the words of the old abbe were constantly in my mind. Nevertheless, no extraordinary event had occurred to verify the funereal predictions of Serapion, and I had commenced to believe that his fears and my own terrors were over-exaggerated, when one night I had a strange dream. I had hardly fallen asleep when I heard my bed curtains drawn apart as their rings slided back upon the curtain-rod with a sharp sound. I rose up quickly upon my elbow, and beheld the shadow of a woman standing erect before me. I recognized Claremond immediately. She bore in her hand a little lamp, shaped like those which are placed in tombs, and its light lent her fingers a rosy transparency which extended itself by lessening degrees even to the opaque and milky whiteness of her bare arm. Her only garment was the linen winding-sheet which had shrouded her when lying upon the bed of death. She sought to gather its folds over her bosom as though ashamed of being so scantily clad, but her little hand was not equal to the task. She was so white that the color of the drapery blended with that of her flesh under the pallid rays of the lamp, enveloped with the subtle tissue which betrayed all the contour of her body. She seemed rather the marble statue of some fair antique rather than a woman endowed with life. But dead or living, statue or woman, shadow or body, her beauty was still the same, only that the green light of her eyes was less brilliant, and her mouth, once so warmly crimson, was only tinted with a faint tender rosiness like that of her cheeks. The little blue flowers which I had noticed entwined in her hair were withered and dry and had lost nearly all their leaves, but this did not prevent her from being charming so charming that notwithstanding the strange character of the adventure and the unexplainable manner in which she had entered my room, I felt not even for a moment the least fear. She placed the lamp on the table and seated herself at the foot of my bed. Then bending toward me, she said, in that voice at once silvery clear and yet velvety in its sweet softness, such as I never heard from any lips save hers, I have kept thee long in waiting, dear Romuald, and it must have seemed to thee that I had forgotten thee. But I come from afar off, very far off, and from a land whence no other has ever yet returned. There is neither sun nor moon in that land whence I come. All is but space and shadow. 
There is neither road nor pathway, no earth for the foot, no air for the wing. And nevertheless, behold me here, for love is stronger than death and must conquer him in the end. Oh, what sad faces and fearful things I have seen on my way hither. What difficulty my soul, returned to earth through the power of will alone, has had in finding its body and reinstating itself therein. What terrible efforts I had to make ere I could lift the ponderous slab with which they had covered me. See, the palms of my poor hands are all bruised. Kiss them, sweet love, that they may be healed. She laid the cold palms of her hands upon my mouth, one after the other. I kissed them, indeed, many times, and she the while watched me with a smile of ineffable affection. I confessed to my shame that I had entirely forgotten the advice of the Abbe Serapion and the sacred office wherewith I had been invested. I had fallen without resistance, and at the first assault. I had not even made the least effort to repel the tempter. The fresh coolness of Claremont's skin penetrated my own, and I felt voluptuous tremors pass over my whole body. Poor child! In spite of all I saw afterward, I can hardly yet believe she was a demon. At least she had no appearance of being such and never did Satan so skillfully conceal his claws and horns. She had drawn her feet up beneath her, and squatted down on the edge of the couch in an attitude full of negligent coquetry. From time to time she passed her little hand through my hair and twisted it into curls, as though trying how a new style of wearing it would become my face. I abandoned myself to her hands with a most guilty pleasure, while she accompanied her gentle play with the prettiest prattle. The most remarkable fact was that I felt no astonishment whatever at so extraordinary an adventure, and as in dreams one finds no difficulty in accepting the most fantastic events as simple facts. So all these circumstances seemed to me perfectly natural in themselves. I loved thee long ere I saw thee, dear Romuald, and sought thee everywhere. Thou wast my dream, and I first saw thee in the church at the fatal moment. I said at once, It is he. I gave thee a look into which I threw all the love I ever had, all the love I now have, all the love I shall ever have for thee. A look that would have damned a cardinal or brought a king to his knees at my feet in view of all his court. Thou remainedst unmoved, preferring thy God to me. Ah! Oh. How jealous I am of that God whom thou didst love and still lovest more than me. Woe is me, unhappy one that I am. 
I can never have thy heart all to myself, I whom thou didst recall to life with a kiss, dead Claremond, who for thy sake bursts asunder the gates of the tomb, and comes to consecrate to thee a life which she has resumed only to make thee happy. All her words were accompanied with the most impassioned caresses, which bewildered my sense and my reason to such an extent that I did not fear to utter a frightful blasphemy for the sake of consoling her, and to declare that I loved her as much as God. Her eyes rekindled and shone like chrysoprase. In truth, in very truth, as much as God, she cried, flinging her beautiful arms around me. Since it is so, thou wilt come with me. Thou wilt follow me whithersoever I desire. Thou wilt cast away thy ugly black habit. Thou shalt be the proudest and most envied of cavaliers. Thou shalt be my lover. To be the acknowledged lover of Claremond, who has refused even a pope, that will be something to feel proud of. Ah, the fair, unspeakably happy existence, the beautiful golden life we shall live together. And when shall we depart, my fair sir? Tomorrow, tomorrow, I cried in my delirium. "'Tomorrow, then, so let it be,' she answered. "'In the meanwhile, I shall have opportunity to change my toilet, "'for this is a little too light and in no wise suited for a voyage. "'I must also forthwith notify all my friends who believe me dead "'and mourn for me as deeply as they are capable of doing.' the money, the dresses, the carriages, all will be ready. I shall call for thee at this same hour. Adieu, dear heart. And she lightly touched my forehead with her lips. The lamp went out, the curtains closed again, and all became dark. A leaden, dreamless sleep fell on me and held me unconscious until the morning following. I awoke later than usual, and the recollection of this singular adventure troubled me during the whole day. I finally persuaded myself that it was a mere vapor of my heated imagination. Nevertheless, its sensations had been so vivid that it was difficult to persuade myself that they were not real and it was not without some presentiment of what was going to happen that I got into bed at last, after having prayed God to drive far from me all thoughts of evil, and to protect the chastity of my slumber. I soon fell into a deep sleep, and my dream was continued. The curtains again parted, and I beheld Claremond not as on the former occasion, pale in her pale winding-sheet, with the violets of death upon her cheeks, but gay, sprightly, jaunty, 
in a superb traveling dress of green velvet, trimmed with gold lace, and looped up on either side to allow a glimpse of satin petticoat. Her blonde hair escaped in thick ringlets from beneath a broad black felt hat, decorated with white feathers whimsically twisted into various shapes. In one hand she held a little riding whip terminated by a golden whistle. She tapped me lightly with it and exclaimed, "'Well, my fine sleeper, is this the way you make your preparations?' I thought I would find you up and dressed. Arise quickly. We have no time to lose. I leapt out of bed at once. Come, dress yourself and let us go, she continued, pointing to a little package she had brought with her. The horses are becoming impatient of delay and champing their bits at the door. We ought to have been by this time at least ten leagues distant from here. I dressed myself hurriedly, and she handed me the articles of apparel herself, one by one, bursting into laughter from time to time at my awkwardness, as she explained to me the use of a garment when I had made a mistake. She hurriedly arranged my hair, and this done held up before me a little pocket-mirror of Venetian crystal, rimmed with silver filigree work, and playfully asked, How dost find thyself now? Wilt engage me for thy valet de chambre? I was no longer the same person, and I could not even recognize myself. I resembled my former self no more than a finished statue resembles a block of stone. My old face seemed but a coarse daub of the one reflected in the mirror. I was handsome, and my vanity was sensibly tickled by the metamorphosis. The elegant apparel, that richly embroidered vest, had made of me a totally different personage and I marveled at the power of transformation owned by a few yards of cloth cut after a certain pattern. The spirit of my costume penetrated my very skin, and within ten minutes more I had become something of a coxcomb. In order to feel more at ease in my new attire, I took several turns up and down the room. Claremond watched me with an air of maternal pleasure, and appeared well satisfied with her work. Come, enough of this child's play. Let us start, Romal, dear. We have far to go, and we may not get there in time. She took my hand and led me forth. All the doors opened before her at a touch, and we passed by the dog without awakening him. At the gate we found Margaritone waiting, the same swarthy groom who had once before been my escort. He held the bridles of three horses, all black like those which bore us to the castle, one for me, one for him, one for Claremond. Those horses must have been Spanish genets, born of mares fecundated by a zephyr, 
for they were fleet as the wind itself, and the moon, which had just risen at our departure to light us on our way, rolled over the sky like a wheel detached from her own chariot. We beheld her on the right leaping from tree to tree and putting herself out of breath in the effort to keep up with us. Soon we came upon a level plain where, hard by a clump of trees, a carriage with four vigorous horses awaited us. We entered it, and the postilions urged their animals into a mad gallop. I had one arm around Clarimonde's waist, and one of her hands clasped in mine. Her head leaned upon my shoulder, and I felt her bosom half bare, lightly pressing against my arm. I had never known such intense happiness, and that hour I had forgotten everything and I no more remembered having ever been a priest than I remembered what I had been doing in my mother's womb, so great was the fascination which the evil spirit exerted upon me. From that night my nature seemed in some sort to have become halved, and there were two men within me, neither of whom knew the other. At one moment I believed myself a priest who dreamed nightly that he was a gentleman, at another that I was a gentleman who dreamed he was a priest. I could no longer distinguish the dream from the reality, nor could I discover where the reality began or where ended the dream. The exquisite young lord and libertine railed at the priest, the priest loathed the dissolute habits of the young lord. I always retained with extreme vividness all the perceptions of my two lives. Only there was one absurd fact which I could not explain to myself, namely that the consciousness of the same individuality existed in two men so opposite in character. It was an anomaly for which I could not account. Whether I believed myself to be the curé of the little village of C, or Il Signor Romald, the titled lover of Clermont. End of section twenty eight. Clermont, part three.